The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing in this series on authentic discipleship, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, we come this morning to the final beatitude, the final mark of the Christian, the final characteristic that Jesus says actually produces blessing in the believer's life. And this final beatitude may seem to just supply to those in other parts of the world but we will see that it has application to all of us and is actually just like the first seven beatitude. It is a universal characteristic of all Christians showing the genuineness and authenticity of their faith in Jesus Christ. Hear the word of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a true story in the Missions and Me booklet that our children are working through in preparation for our missions conference. And this year, the theme of that conference is standing with the persecuted church. The story in Unit 1 is about two sisters and their parents in India. I want to read it to you. It's found on page 11 of that book. Akuti and Alicia do not have an easy life. They live in a village in India surrounded by 400 Hindu families. The girls and their parents, Pratik and Dharmi, are Christians. A group of Hindu leaders delivered a warning to all the villagers. They made these rules. No one can talk to Pratik's family. Shops must not sell anything to members of the family. Anyone who disobeys the rules must pay a fine. The girls are no longer allowed to attend school in the village. When the family walks outside their house, villagers curse and spit on them. Akuti and Alicia's family does not own a car. Their mom now has to walk 10 miles to get groceries. This is a very far distance. In your car on the highway, it would take you 10 minutes to drive that far. The family recently found a church about 15 miles away. Walking to church can take almost five hours each way. But they walk to the church and back twice a week, to worship and fellowship with other believers. I read this story because it's very typical of the persecution of Christians around the world and throughout the history of the church. Persecution in America and in the West in general has not been very extreme in the past 300 years. But I don't want any of us to hear Jesus' words in this final beatitude and think, this doesn't apply to me. Actually, it applies to all Christians 
everywhere. What do we learn from this beatitude? Well, our first point is this. Jesus tells us to expect persecution. Jesus tells us that the common reaction of the world to Christians living in active faith in Jesus Christ and seeking to follow him, that reaction of the world will be opposition, hostility, persecution. Don't be surprised. Don't think that something like this is unusual. But remember, Jesus says that you are blessed. Notice from our text that Jesus gives two different phrases to describe the reason for persecution. In verse 10, for righteousness' sake, and in verse 11, on my account. Think with me about each of those. For righteousness' sake highlights the fact that believers live lives that are different from the world around us. There is a righteousness that begins to be seen in those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And it can't help but to come out and be seen in some way. And much of the time, that Christ-like character and that Christ-like living somehow bothers other people around us. You ask, why is that so? If it's Christ-like, why would it bother anyone? Well, think about how Christ-like, how Christ's life bothered others. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That doesn't mean that Christians somehow walk around with the flashlight shining their light on anybody who sins. No, it just means the very nature of Christians living in their day-to-day life will often have the impact of convicting others around them. It tends to convict people of sin. Maybe you're at work and someone tells an off-color joke or makes a racist remark and you don't laugh, you don't participate You might not say anything, but your co-workers get the idea that you are marching to a different drumbeat. It's not that you're self-righteous or obnoxious or trying to be judgmental. No, you're just different because of what Jesus has done in your life, and you are living for him. I had a young couple tell me the other month that when they got engaged, none of the other people in their graduate degree program understood why they were not living together. Everyone just thought it was very odd. It was like they had green skin and were from Mars. That's the effect. Those kinds of differences are what Jesus is talking about when he says, for righteousness' sake. Sometimes they lead to some level of persecution and sometimes not, but it's there. And then the other phrase he uses in in verse 11 is, on my account, They do these things. They revile and persecute and and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here Jesus is describing the reason in terms of our relationship to him as believers. We are in Christ through faith in him. We belong to him. We confess him as our Lord. We say he is our only Lord. The early Christians were often persecuted because they would not confess Caesar is Lord in the sense of worshiping him or confessing that Caesar is some kind of God. There were, that was the typical religion of that world. Some of them, we know, were famously thrown to the lions in the Colosseum of Rome on account of Jesus on his, for his sake. And that's the same kind of reason persecution still happens today throughout the world. Opposition, because at its heart, 
The world does not believe or confess Jesus Christ is Lord. The world might say, well, Jesus was probably a very good man. Maybe he was a prophet. He certainly did good things. He said good words. But there's a fundamental hostility that often comes out and is aimed at believers because of Jesus and who he claims to be. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 15, in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Do you see the link there? He says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? In many ways, we are just like everyone else. We are in this world, he says. We go to work or we go to school. We raise our families. We mow our lawns. We shovel our snow. We get sick. We face hardships. We have dreams and aspirations for life. We have failings and weaknesses. We enjoy many of the same things that everybody else enjoys. We like good food. We enjoy hobbies, maybe music or art. Maybe we enjoy exercising. We have friendships. We like happy times, on and on. But deep down and showing up in many ways in everyday life, Christians are not of this world. They are new creations in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. We are seeking to live for him and glorify him. There is a righteousness of a changed life that cannot be hidden. There is an allegiance to Jesus that shows up again and again in everything we do, in our priorities, in our values, in our goals. It cannot be hidden. Christ's kingdom has invaded our lives, and we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven first and foremost, even though we are citizens on earth as well. And many times, this leads to some kind of opposition or persecution. And so, expect it. Expect persecution. Don't be surprised that the very nature of the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that of opposition in this world. In fact, if you know nothing of this constant opposition, then it should make you stop and wonder, well, am I really living as a disciple of Jesus? Am I, have I truly put my faith in him? Or maybe as a believer, you are deeply compromised with the world in various areas. You're giving into the world and its values right and left, and so you don't feel this opposition because you're just going along with the world. Think of it like a nice summer day swimming in the Conestoga River. Let's say you're tubing down the Conestoga and you get out and swim for a while. And the current's not that strong, but it's a lot easier to swim down current, right, with the current. You just motor along, but if you turn around and try to swim up current, there's going to be resistance. It's going to be hard. That's the idea. In this world, Christians are always swimming upstream against the current, even as for most of us, the persecution is not very severe. The opposition of the world is a mark of the genuineness of our faith in Christ. Expect persecution. But secondly, note that there are different degrees of persecution. Jesus mentions persecution in verse 10, and then in verse 11, he talks about persecution, but of a level that is not as severe as he talks about elsewhere. 
In verse 11, he mentions verbal persecution, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. In other words, they maybe gossip about you or slander you and say false things, but that we, we know there's persecution that's a lot worse. The early Christians were accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper. And I'm sure the people who made that accusation knew that they really weren't cannibals. But in other places, Jesus speaks of greater degrees. In John 16, verse 2, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. There's the ultimate sacrifice in this life being put to death for Christ, and the people doing it thinking that they are serving God as they do it, doesn't it? It reminds me of 2015, of that beach in Libya with the 21 Coptic Christians in their orange jumpsuits, being put to death by terrorists who believed and claimed to be doing it for their God. That's the opposite extreme. If you haven't seen the big map down our front hallway that is across from the missions display there, showing the levels or the degrees of persecution in the world, you should walk down the hallway and take a look at that map. It's very interesting. You see the countries of the world color-coded into different groups according to how severe the persecution is there. You see the most severe areas, this big red swath across the middle of a lot of the world, 39 nations. These nations have anti-Christian laws. Christians are often put in jail there. They lose their possessions or their freedom. They typically have to worship in secret. They are sometimes even killed for their faith. These are the restricted nations, as they're called. And then there are nations one notch lower, hostile nations. There are 14 of these on that map. In these nations, there may be laws protecting Christians' freedoms to worship, but the laws are hardly ever enforced, and they're persecuted in spite of the laws. And so, for example, a farmer's cows are let loose every time he attends church, or a church service is disrupted every Sunday by neighbors making loud noise, or a Christian's Bible is taken away and burned. Then there's another level lower of nations where there is some persecution, but it is getting worse. And there are 11 of those. And so you should look at that map. But then think of it, there are other nations then even lower, and the United States is one of those, where there is religious freedom, and the USA is a nation that's at the forefront of those historically. But even in the United States... Christians face persecution and opposition. They face mocking and ridicule and scorn and maybe bullying. And in fact, there are regular accounts that you can read about Christians who have lost their jobs because of their faith in Christ and their stand for Christ, or Christians who are not hired because of their Christian testimony or not being admitted to graduate programs because of Christianity. Yes, we should be very thankful that... Uh, We live in a nation that has such freedoms, and we should do all we can to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. But don't lose sight that this beatitude applies to all of us, even if it means only 
but still people gossiping about you uh, or just the fact that you don't really fit in, maybe in your school or your workplace or your neighborhood. No matter how much you try, you just don't completely fit in. Young people especially. This can be especially difficult to you because of your peers. It could be hard because you want to fit in, but this is the cost of following Jesus Christ, and you need to expect it, and you need to count the cost. You may not have to walk 15 miles to church both ways, but you might be laughed at by your friends for being serious about Jesus Christ. So expect persecution. Realize that there are different degrees of persecution. And our third point is this. Jesus calls us to rejoice in persecution. Isn't that interesting? Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you. And then verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And in Luke's account, in Luke 6, Luke says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Kick your heels. Christians are called not just to dutifully bear persecution, not just to be stoic, but to actually rejoice. Now, isn't that an incredible thing? Think of that. I haven't had to bear very much in this regard. It's not something I really like. Am I rejoicing, though? And we ask, how can that be, especially with these extreme forms? But we know throughout history, we read the testimonies of those who experience them, often it's with great joy in Jesus Christ. It's a God-given, Christ-centered, future-oriented joy. And here in this beatitude, Jesus gives us three reasons to keep in mind, three reasons to rejoice, and they're very important to take to heart. The first is... We have fellowship with Jesus Christ in persecution. We have fellowship with Jesus our Lord. Back to the phrase in verse 11, on account of me, on my account. We read in Acts chapter 5 that the apostles were arrested and brought before the council and they're questioned and so forth. And then verse 40 says, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. But notice in the account The beating isn't the emphasis. The next verse says this. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's an example of this beatitude being fulfilled. You see the connection. The apostles were rejoicing. Why? Because it was like a badge of honor. It was like a sign that they belonged to Christ and that they were united to Christ. Yes, the suffering is very real, In one sense, there is pain and suffering and loss, but there is this deeper joy. There is this higher blessedness of fellowship and unity with Jesus, our Lord. I couldn't resist this illustration, so you'll have to bear with me. But imagine that you are a football fan. And just imagine that your team is playing in the Super Bowl sometime. And imagine your team is the Eagles. And But imagine that you're a ninth grader and you live in Boston and you've been going to school for the last two weeks. Now, I just want you to think, what has your past two weeks been like? Well, you've been walking down the school hallways in your green eagle shirt in this sea of red, white, and blue Patriot shirts all around you. Well, what's happening? 
as you walk by. Well, people are kidding you and saying things, and maybe even it's getting out of hand some. Maybe you're getting shoved, and maybe your shirt's gotten ripped. I don't know. But in the midst of all that, what's your reaction? Well, if you're a true fan, you take it as a badge of honor. You stand for your team. You hold your head high. You endure mocking and ridicule and maybe even being shoved around. And why is that? It's because you are united to your team, isn't it? There is a city somewhere south of Boston that everybody's wearing green. And there are players in that city who are, and you know their names by heart, and they're going to play their heart out for the good of the team and the ultimate prize. And so you are part of that united brotherhood, even if you are living in a foreign land. And so you walk down that hallway with inner joy. Okay. Now, we know that in our society, sports have grown to an idolatrous proportion. There are people who live their lives centered on their team. It's like religion. It rises to the point of worship, and that's a very sad thing. But my point is, if that ninth grader could have that inner joy with the unity of his team, how much more do you and I as believers have fellowship with Jesus Christ and the body of Christ, whatever the persecution or the hostility, especially knowing that Jesus Christ is the only true and living God, the only true Lord, the only one who satisfies the human heart and soul. How much more can Christians rejoice, whatever the opposition? Secondly, the reason in verse 12, because of the reward. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Do you hear the motivation here? There is a reward, and it's not wrong to be motivated by the reward. Sometimes we think we shouldn't think about the reward. We should just do this because we know it's right. No, the Bible is full of motivating us by the reward. We don't earn the reward. We don't merit the reward. It's all by grace, but it's important because at the heart, the reward is God himself fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the new heavens and the earth with all Christians for all eternity. Amazing. It's like God said to Abraham in Genesis 15:1, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. There it was, even way back then, God speaking about the reward. God himself is our reward, and we are co-heirs with Christ, so that in Christ all the joys of heaven is ours as well. We have it as a down payment now through the Spirit, and one day it will all be ours in Christ together. And so we read Hebrews 10.34, describing the experience of young believers not long after they had come to Christ and experiencing severe persecution. It says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There it is, the great reward. They they joyfully experienced, I'm sure it wasn't fun, and I'm sure they didn't have as much as we all have, people taking a lot of their property, their clothes, their probably their food, maybe their little stove, whatever they had, and they experienced that joyfully. Why? Because he says, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's talking about the possession we have in Christ eternally. 
Isn't that an example of this beatitude being lived out? And they were humans, and just like us, they had the same kind of problems that we had. Joy even in having some or all of your possessions take away because of the inheritance we have in Christ. The certainty of joy and life in Christ outweighs whatever cost we might have to bear in this life. And to the the degree that we have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and the reward in him, we will have that abiding joy, whatever the circumstance might be. Look to the reward. Look to the reward. And thirdly, a third reason Jesus gives at the end of verse 12, rejoice and be glad for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a mark of the genuineness of our faith. I've already mentioned this. This is what that reference is about. Why does Jesus mention the prophets of Old Testament times? Because they suffered, because they were persecuted. The kings and people regularly hated them. They didn't like to hear them. They resisted them. And eventually, some of them were imprisoned and some of them were killed. But what about the false prophets of that era? They were treated well. They were pretty much loved. They were treated royally. Why? Because they said what everyone wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear about their sin. They didn't want to hear about their idolatry. They didn't need to hear about the fact that they had to turn to God in repentance and faith. And so they had a good life. And so in light of this, Jesus is saying, if you experience persecution, whatever the degree, it shows that your faith is genuine. You are part of the company of the prophets. We need to believe that. Persecution is a mark of the authenticity of our faith. Remember, these Beatitudes don't teach us how to enter the kingdom. That's through believing in Jesus Christ. But they tell us the marks of what a Christian looks like. And notice the symmetry here. The first Beatitude and the last both have the blessedness of saying, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whatever the level of persecution Christians around the world are experiencing, it shows that they have entered the kingdom, that theirs is the kingdom, and the world is opposed to Christ and opposed to them. In 1775, during the Revolutionary War, when the British had taken control of large parts of central New Jersey, it was then that the true allegiance of many people came to light. The people who were only fair-weather friends of the revolutionary cause quickly tended to go over to the British side. That made life a lot easier. But the ones who were true to the revolutionary cause experienced great hardship during that time. They often experienced great loss. In other words, persecution marked out the genuine patriots, we would say. So Jesus is saying, rejoice because this is showing that you truly belong to me. We've seen that these beatitudes, these characteristics, are not things that we can simply generate or produce by our own strength, by our own resolve. No, these are the work of the Holy Spirit. These are the result of being a new creation in Christ, being born of the Spirit. They are marks in our life that flow out of faith in Jesus Christ. 
and he is transforming those who belong to him. Yes, it's imperfect in this life. Don't we all grieve that? And we all fall in many ways and fail and fall short. But these marks, these characteristics are real. They are genuine. And I ask you, is there something of these beatitudes in your life? If not, then the calling to you is the call of the gospel that the Bible holds out to believe in Jesus Christ, to put your faith in Him, to rest on His finished work on the cross for sinners, and to give Him the lordship of your life, to turn away from all the idolatries of this world and to turn to Him and confess Him as Savior and Lord. And then you will begin to show forth these beatitudes. And for those of us who know Christ, these beatitudes Notice that they should both convict us and comfort us. Both of those things should be going on at the same time as we live for Christ and as God works His goodwill in our lives. And even if it's through some degree of suffering for Christ's sake, and it will be, we will be blessed by Jesus Christ who has pronounced these blessings because we are in Him and know Him and He is doing and working out His image in our lives. To him be the glory. Amen. Father, thank you for these wonderful words, these words of life, these words that encourage us, even if the persecution would become severe, help us to take to heart the promises here, the the teaching that forms our lives, and we ask that we would in some small way bring praise to your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.